Our reading tonight is uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good evening. Happy New Year. I'm Pastor Brooks. I'll be bringing you the word tonight. Uh, This is... uh, going to be tricky a little bit in the sense that uh, you guys here, we, I shouldn't say you guys, I attend, this is the church that I actually attend when I'm not preaching. Um, we here at the downtown campus did not meet uh, last Sunday. Uh, so some of you came to North Liberty and some of you didn't. How many of you actually came to North Liberty? Okay, a few of you. How many of you are just slackers and you didn't do it? Now you don't have to raise your hand. Um, no, but what we did in North Liberty last week, we we uh, kicked off a very brief three-message series. And this is part two-ish. I'm going to try to combine messages one and two so most of you who didn't didn't hear that message won't be kind of left in the dark. And you can always go online and and listen to that. Uh, But uh, that's that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a look at the Beatitudes that were just read here uh, or just a minute ago. Um, But I want to... I want to open up with, let's see, oh seriously, only me, only me. We tested it even, didn't we? Didn't we? No? Am I pushing the wrong one? (sighs) You know what? No, it's not advancing. Steve, I swear we tested it. It's there. We go there. Okay, is that you advancing or me? Oh, great! So this is what a mom does when their child is learning to walk. She's really helping me walk, but I think it's all me. I think it's all me. So of course, of course, he's doing it. <laughs> Did you hear what he said? Did you pray today? Jerk. <laughs> what a jerk. Okay, let's see. All right, so uh, the blessing of brokenness. We'll see. This, this is going to break me right here. The blessing of brokenness. Here's a... Uh, oh, seriously, you walk away, it doesn't work now. Let's just use the Scripture and ditch technology altogether, shall we? Yay. That's what I'm voting for. So, um, in November of, actually, there you go. Let's leave that up there. Uh, in November of 20, uh, November 27th, 2018, um, I was looking back just recently in my journal from uh, about a year and a few months ago, and this is a prayer. I don't, I don't write all my prayers down, but I, I journal uh, typically, and here's, here's what I wrote. This is a prayer. Lord, I've been dry for some time. I function day to day as a servant on mission for you, but I fear I've simply fallen into a rut. My prayer life is not alive. God, I don't even know what I need. I come to you and ask you to give me life, 
Breathe life into me and into the church. Bring revival for the glory of your son. So how many of you at any time in your walk with Christ, maybe some of you are not yet following Christ. You're not, you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, but many of you have. And, but how many of you who have been following Christ for at least a, a few years have found yourself in a rut where you find the things which are supposed to be devotion are, are just done out of duty? Anybody been there? Okay, this is a common thing. And so I was in that place uh, last November and I began, to, I began to pray for revival. Now typically when you pray for revival, what the word revival means is to be, it means to be renewed. It, it means to be made alive. It means that new life is breathed into something which is stagnant or dry. And so that's what I was praying. Um, now the means by which God brings that about is oftentimes not what we bargain for. Not what we bargain for. So if you have your Bibles, open them to, uh, to Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah chapter 57. Just one verse, verse 15 Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. So the word revive, the word revival, as we typically think of it in our context, isn't often used in the Bible. And it's certainly not referring to what we think of uh, in terms of maybe hundred, the last hundred years when you think of tent revivals, we think of evangelistic crusades. That's not what, the, that's not what I was praying. That's nothing wrong with that. Uh, that's not what I was praying, and that's not what Isaiah, that's not what the Lord is saying to Isaiah. When he says he will revive the heart of the contrite, he's talking about breathing life, breathing life, giving life to something which is, which is dead. Now, here's the interesting thing about the word contrite. When we think of the word contrite, it, 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 means, to, it means to be sorry for sin, right? Now, the Hebrew word for contrite literally means to be broken into small pieces, to be beaten into dust. So for, finish this sentence. I would be happy and blessed if 2020 brought me fill in the blank. Did you fill in the blank mentally? How many of you said I'd be happy and blessed if the Lord beat me to dust? Did anybody put that into the, no one puts that in, no one ever does that. No one, but here's the irony. The irony and the, and, and the way that God works, the very thing that we want or we think we want least is the, is the means by which God actually brings us the greatest blessing. Actually brings us the greatest blessing. Uh, hence the, the, the title for this very short three-part series, The Blessing of Brokenness. So we're going to take a look at the Beatitudes. Uh, we're going to take a look at the Beatitudes now. Um, but first, if you want to advance to the first slide, the pre-Beatitudes where we all start. Let me pray and then we'll jump right into it. Father, we thank you for the fact that you use our brokenness and painful circumstances and even our own sin to bring us to a knowledge of you and a greater uh, depth of understanding and rejoicing in, in, the, in the freedom that we have in Christ. Even use our brokenness to bring us to Christ initially. So Lord, you are completely at work in all things, even our pain, even our failure, even our sin. 
Lord, we pray that you would be at work as we open up the scriptures uh, tonight and speak to hearts, uh, including my own. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the pre-beatitude. So the beatitudes are a series of blessings, or rather proclamations, where Jesus says, if you have this characteristic, you are truly blessed. Um, Now here's the pre-beatitude. This is where all of us start, because none of us believe the beatitudes at first. We can't. We can't. I mean, how many of you... How many of you have put together a resume before? How many of you put down on that resume uh, my my three strengths? Brokenness, I cry a lot, and I'm really meek. How many of you put that on a resume? Those are the first three. And Jesus said, blessed are those. And then he lists those, those characteristics. Now here's our beatitude, where we all start. I want what I want, and then I'll be blessed. Here's, here's what this means. In our, and this is not unique to Western culture in our, in, our, in our time, in our era. It's just the way human beings think. If I, get, if I get that job or that placement in grad school or that perfect relationship or this, this much money or the perfect body or good health or fill in the blank, if I get something and we think of something positive, then I'll be happy. Jesus comes along in the Beatitudes, in the intro to the Sermon on the Mount, and he throws everything on its head and lists a bunch of things which nobody wants and says, that's actually the key to you being blessed. And we're going to see how that actually is true, and I'm going to anecdotally share uh, how God has used um, pain, uh, mostly through my own failure, and he's showing me that, uh, how, he has brought about, uh, how he has brought about blessing. So uh, please turn in, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Let's take a look at that. So Matthew chapter 5. He opened his mouth. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So that's the first beatitude. Now the word blessed here, it just simply means that this person is ultimately happy. This person is, is fortunate. It doesn't mean bless as in Jesus is blessing them, I bless you. It means, no, it's a statement of this person is really fortunate. So who's really fortunate? It says here, the poor, the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now that word poor here, there's a couple different words that, that, uh, that Matthew could use that they're both translated into English for poor. One is like the poor widow uh, who gave her two copper coins. And Jesus said that she was uh, more generous than anyone else that had given that day because she gave all that she had. That's that They called her the poor widow. It means having very little. That's not the word that Jesus uses. The word that he chooses to use here in the Greek is the same word that Luke uses to describe Lazarus. Lazarus, who was the poor beggar. And that, that Greek word, poor, means, it, it, it means uh, wretched. It means destitute. It, it means not having little. It means uh, to cower. So when, when it says, Luke says that there was a poor beggar and they laid him at the rich man's gate. What does that tell you about the means and the abilities of Lazarus? If they had to lay him at the gate, what does that tell you? It means that he doesn't have the ability to walk. 
He can't do anything. So what Jesus is saying here, and he's not referring to poverty in the sense of, of wealth. He's talking about spiritual poverty, uh, the poor in spirit. Here's what Jesus is saying. Blessed are those who recognize they're completely spiritually and morally bankrupt, and they have no ability to do anything good. You're blessed. You're blessed. Now that's counterintuitive. That doesn't seem right. That seems painful. Who wants to be, spiritually speaking, uh, the equivalent of a beggar at a rich man's gate covered in sores? That doesn't sound like my top 10 things that I want to do in the year 2020. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. And yet, that's the entryway, that's the entryway into a string of blessings. So, for me, um, I've, I've been recognized my poverty of spirit at various times, maybe more than others. When I first became a Christian, I was, I was crushed and broken under the weight of my perceived sin. And, and I thought most of the sin issues, this is funny how this works, when you become a Christian, you think that, oh, I'm washed in the blood of the Lamb. I'm so glad that I got that sin behind me, right? And, and, I, and I haven't dealt with those types of sins that I dealt with when I first became a Christian. I've just graduated to worse sins, uh, at least worse in the sense of more subversive and more subtle, um, not, as, not as apparent, but, but more pharisaical sins, if you will, and, and been totally unaware of them. Well, somewhat aware, but not caring so much because they weren't all that bad, right? They're the, the acceptable sins. Well, they became unacceptable sometime. Well, they've always been unacceptable, but they became uh, something that I couldn't live with anymore because my wife couldn't live with anymore. So I've always been, I've always been uh, fairly passionate. Um, I've always been uh, quick-tempered-ish. And my wife for years has been telling me that I have anger issues. And I used to fight her on that. I used to say, oh, I'm not angry, I'm just passionate. I'm just passionate. Um, and and eventually, about 10 years ago, I caved and I said, oh, no, you're right, I have anger issues. And so I began to work on those diligently. I began to clean the outside of the dish, if you will. Uh, and, and, and sincerely, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to gain the upper hand on my anger. I didn't want to be an angry person. I didn't want to be an angry husband, an angry pastor, even though I still yell when I preach. And, and, uh, and so I worked on that, and there, I got better-ish. There were greater duration, the duration between episodes where we would have an have a argument where I would want to insist that I'm right and I end up running over my wife in terms of uh, having this personality where I have to insist that I'm right and I have to show her that she's wrong about how she sees me and, and I don't mean to come across as passion, I just am and then I, um, and then I just kind of, I just work her into a corner intellectually and she can't argue with me and she's just an emotional puddle on the floor. I can't take this, you're so angry. Why well, am not angry? You know, that kind of thing. And I'm sure that I'm the only male and the only marriage couple that's ever experienced this phenomenon. But uh, this happened sometime February last year, so almost a year ago, again, after a long duration, but it happened again. Stacy said, you know, I can't, I can't deal with this. And so I'm like, well, and she had recommended counseling years ago. And I'm like, I don't need counseling. I'm a counselor, you know, I'm certified biblical counselor. I didn't say that, but I'm 
you know, I can take care of my own, my own. I don't need help, right? So I finally caved and said, okay, okay, and so what, you know, and said, well, I don't want to be counseled by one of your buddies. You know, that's my wife, you know, meaning Jason. Jason's not going to counsel us. <laughs> Wise choice. So uh, we went to an older, wiser, not, not, not to slight Jason, <laughs> but I mean, old, much older than me, years ahead of me, years ahead of Jason, and someone who didn't, wasn't employed at the church. So this is not, this is someone who uh, doesn't work with me. And we started to meet, and he asked Stacy, he's like, so Brooks, is he an angry, would you characterize Brooks as an angry man? And she said, no, not at all. Not typically, but when he does get angry, um, it's, it's, it's just not acceptable. And so she's asking, or he's asking, so what is that like? And, and, and Stacy's describing it, and I'm totally like, yep, that's, that's accurate, that's accurate. And I was not disputing any of this. And then he started to go in this direction. He says, so tell me, when, when is it like, when, when do these things happen? When do you, he says, well, any time that I have to disagree with him, especially anything that has to do with church, those are like, those are third rail areas that I can't go near. And, and, and so the catalyst, the event that brought us the, to this, this point of conflict um, that, uh, that he was asking her to describe that, and she said, well, I had this meeting, and, I, and it had to do with, you know, church and this and that, and, and, and I was on my way home. I started to get sick to my stomach. She's like, well, why? She said, well, I knew that, I knew that Brooks was going to say, well, how'd the meeting go? And then I was going to have to tell him how the meeting went. And then I was going to have to disagree with him. And then, and then I knew he was going to be self-defensive. And I knew it was going to, I just knew it was going to go south. And I, I just, and when we have those moments or when I have to bring anything which is, he doesn't want to face, I feel like I'm walking on eggshells and I get sick to my stomach. And then the counselor, Jim, says, turns to me and he says, Brooks, what your wife is describing are the characteristics of an emotionally abused wife. So that's how I started 2019. And that's not acceptable. You see, there's a difference between spiritual gifting and spiritual fruit. And it's very, very easy to confuse the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives you to edify the body of Christ and the fruit of the Spirit. So, to be brought to a place of contrition, to use the Hebrew word, means to be beaten to fine dust. And so, that's where I was a little less than a year ago. And there were many times throughout the months that ensued where I questioned if I was qualified as a pastor. I wondered if I should do something else. Not because I lacked gifting, but because I, I, can't, I have to be above reproach. That's the, what it means to be an elder. You have to be above reproach. And I didn't feel 
that I was above reproach. It was, a, it was difficult to, I mean, and here's the crazy thing. This wasn't news to my wife. It wasn't like she's like, what? <laughs> this was like, she's seen this for 30 years. It was news to me. You can ask my children. They're both here, not in front of me, let, because they too know what it means to live uh, uh, and have a father who it's not necessarily wise to differ in opinion with him. At least if you don't want pushback. So they've seen it. They, they can testify to everything. But I just couldn't see it. I'm just passionate, right? It's like, no, you're a jerk. You're a jerk. That's what you are. So anyway, so much for the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what makes heaven heaven? Let's, let's get out of the depressing. and Well, it's going to get worse before it gets better. But what's the, what, is, what, is, what makes heaven heaven? The presence of God. The presence of God. So God dwells with the contrite. He dwells with the contrite. So only in the state of recognition of poverty and spirit can God draw near to me and can I draw near to him. This is a prerequisite for revival. This is a, now, we fight this because how many of you think it would feel awesome to look in the mirror and recognize that you're a complete jerk? No hands go up. It's because it's not awesome. It feels awful, which leads us to the next one. Blessed are those who, what? Mourn. The word here, mourn, it means, it means to feel sorrow, deep sorrow or regret. I, this is a progression. What Jesus is doing here is he's, he's drawing us alarm. This is how it works. You want, you want to be blessed? You've got to go low first. You've got to be brought to po being poor in spirit and recognizing your poverty spirit. And here's what happens. When you see yourself as you are in your flesh in comparison to a holy God, here's what happens. You feel like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he's in the, in the throne room and he sees this vision of, of God on the throne and the angels singing, holy, 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 holy is he who sits upon the throne. He says, woe is me for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. That's not pleasant. You begin to mourn. You begin to grieve over the reality of the sin that indwells you. Now, I know that I'm a Christian, and I know my position in Christ. But here's the thing. I can preach my Christian identity and who I am in Jesus and the righteousness that I have in Him and still be blind to my sin, still bring pain to others, and be unbroken and not grieving over my sin. So this is important that we allow ourselves to go through this. And then not just once, but, and not all the time, but this is a cyclical process. So there's mourning. And you begin to mourn. So when you mourn, uh, when you mourn, when we typically use the word mourn, we think of, we think of funerals, we think of losing a loved one. So what, what happens when we mourn is we're grieving that sin has, has invaded the created order and brought chaos and stolen someone from us. 
That's what, what it means to mourn. So spiritually when we mourn, when I look in the mirror and I see a manifestation of my flesh and pride and, the, and what it does in the context of my marriage and what it does in the context of my relationships with people in the body of Christ and people that are not in the body of Christ, I, I'm, I'm grieved over, over what sin has done. My sin. And there's, there's genuine sorrow and that is totally natural. And what Jesus says, he goes, you're blessed. If you get to the place where you're sick of your sin and you're, you're grieving over it, you're, you're, there's sorrow, then you're blessed. Now, don't mistake this. Don't mistake this for I'm grieved over the consequences of my sin. <laughs> totally different. Totally different. A person can be grieved over what the pain that their sin has brought them and not be grieved over their sin. Does that make sense? Not talking about that. That's not what Jesus is referring to. In other words, if you were cast into hell, do you think people are mourning in hell? In a sense, yes. They're grieving the consequences of their sin, but they're not repentant or sorry for their sin. That's not what Jesus means by mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They shall be comforted. Lest you think that I'm just, I I enjoy being negative um, and I want to stay here, Uh, there is a comma Blessed are those who mourn. Doesn't end with a period. It ends with a com- it, it, it transitions. There's a comma. So blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Romans chapter seven. Very briefly, let me give you a picture of Paul going through the same process. So I find it to be a law, or I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see. In my members and other law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive of the law of sin and dwells of my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, that's a picture of an individual who is captivated by, by God, who has been saved by the gospel, who has the Holy Spirit indwelling them, who is grieving over the sin that they still have and they are dealing with. And to the point where there's this proclamation, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's a picture of mourning. But it's followed by immediately, it's followed by comfort because Paul preaches the gospel to himself. And he says, he says in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus to the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So the gospel brings that comfort right around. So there's a period of mourning, but there's a period of rejoicing. When you recognize who you are in Christ. If in fact you are in Christ. So, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And then the next one, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The word meek, it means gentle. It means humble. It means considerate. In the counseling session... Those three words would not be descriptive words that my wife would use to describe me. Certainly not gentle. 
I've never been known as gentle. And I think uh, part of that is my personality. Part of it is just sin. But here's the thing. I think that we have, and I don't want to, I'm just going to say we as a culture, we don't see meek as a positive attribute. No one, no one of you would put that on, an, on a resume. Top 10 qualities. I'm meek. I'm meek. And yet, and yet, it is absolutely essential. Something actually blew my mind. I did a, I did a, a chapel service at Kinnick for the football team earlier in the year. Um, and I don't remember which home game it was. doesn't matter. But I did this exercise where I said, okay, guys, I want you to imagine you are now Division I football coaches. And you're recruiting, and I want you to assume that the athletes you're going to be recruiting, they're all five-star, they're all blue-chip, they're all athletically off the charts. So we're not talking about athletic ability. We're talking about mental qualities, character qualities. What, is the, what are the top two attributes that you think these individuals have to have before you want them to play for you on your football team? Now, I'm thinking that they're going to say, uh, mentally tough, uh, perseverance, or this and that. And so the first person I asked, I don't remember which football player it was, I said, okay, let's have him. And so this guy raised his hand. I said, you. And he said, humility. There goes the stereotype for dumb jocks. I mean, you pretty much nailed that right out of the park. Humility is a synonym for meek. See, here's the thing. In, if you're not meek, you're not teachable. If you're not teachable, you can't be a follower. You can't follow Christ without humility. It's not possible. See, and, and meekness is not persona, it's not, it's not the equivalent of weakness. Meek, they rhyme, but they have nothing to do with one another. Moses is considered in the Bible the meekest man who ever lived. Jesus, what's, what's the animal which he's most attributed or, or referred to as? The what? The what of God. The Lamb of God. How many of you are brutally intimidated when you go to a petting zoo? Ooh, ooh, a lamb. No one's intimidated by lambs. Why? They're meek and mild. They're meek and mild. And yet Jesus still, still in the book of Revelation, continues to be described as the Lamb of God. Meek is not weak. The, the Greek word here that's translated meek is often used in classical Greek to describe uh, beasts of burden, oxen or horse, horses, which are powerful animals, but they've been, they've been bridled, they've been tamed, they've been domesticated, and they follow the lead of their master. That's what it means to be meek. It doesn't mean to be weak. It just means humility. Not seeing yourself uh, except as God sees you, as, as his servant. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, here's the question. How does a person become meek? How does a person become meek? Turn to James chapter 4. Another way of asking this question is how do you become humble? James chapter 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Here's a fun verse. Ready? Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Do you see a pattern here in what James is saying and what the Beatitudes are teaching? Mourning comes before humility. Let your laughter be turned to weeping. 
In other words, stop celebrating your sin and weep over it. Weep over it. And he, let your mourning be turned to joy, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The end result, it is impossible to mourn over your sin. It's impossible to be poor in spirit, see your sin as God sees it, as the Holy Spirit reveals it. It's impossible to be broken, poor in spirit, and grieve over your sin and be proud at the same time. Mutually exclusive. You can't, it's, you can't do it. You can't do it. And my number one vice, at least that I've noticed in the last year, is, is, the, is the vice of pride in terms of how it influences my marriage. Always wanting to be right. Always insisting that my wife's critique of me, she was wrong. Or I was misunderstood. Where does that come from? It comes from pride. It comes from pride. And then once you begin broken of that and you, you see it for what it is, all of a sudden you lose the will to defend yourself because there's nothing to defend. Turns out my wife is right. Not all the time, but mostly. <laughs> And even when she's wrong, she's partially right. And here's the funny thing. You're not terribly different from me, really. It, it seems that we have 20-20 vision whenever we're examining the sins of other people, but we're totally blind to our own sins. And when you begin to be broken over your sin and you begin to mourn over your sin, it's really hard to stay proud. It's possible. You can try it, but it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And that's where humility comes from. It's where humility comes from. Which leads to the next one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Okay, don't have to pull the PowerPoint back up, but the first pre-beatitude, the pre-beatitude is, I want what I want, and then I'll be blessed. So, Initially, we hunger for things which we think will make us happy, which we think will give us joy, and they never deliver. They never deliver. And then we actually humble ourselves before God. We say, Lord, revive me. And he says, are you sure you want that? Oh, I'm sure. And he says, okay. And he shows, shows us the, the, our sin, and, and that brings pain, and that brings humiliation, and that brings mourning, but through the gospel there's comfort, and then humility comes along, and now all of a sudden you begin to hunger for something you've never actually hungered before. You begin to pray, God, make me humble. God, give me the ability to love. Jesus, make me righteous. The word hunger and thirst, those, those two words, means to desire something to the point where you have to have it or you'll go insane. It means, it's not just, you know, I'm a little hungry. It means I, I'm desperate to be filled. Desperate to be filled. So that's what the word hunger means. But what is the object of hunger? What is, this, what is Jesus saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. Okay, what is Righteousness. Righteousness is, if we go to the next slide, next slide, there we go. Righteousness, the act of doing what God requires. That's what it means to be righteous. Okay, do you notice, a, anybody, anybody see a problem with that? 
If, you're, if you don't see a problem with that, jump ahead to Matthew chapter 5 and look at verse 48. Matthew 5, verse 48. What's it say? Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's what it means to be righteous. So that's what you want. You want, I want Christ to be formed in me. And that's not possible through the obedience to the law. So how do you do that? How do you do that? See, there's the problem. The Pharisees, the audience that Jesus is preaching to in the Sermon on the Mount, are convinced of their own righteousness. And so he preaches the Sermon on the Mount partially to show them what the kingdom of heaven is like, but also to show them that they're not ready for it and to prep their hearts in a way where he's going to use the law to show them that they don't measure up. So, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So this whole wanting to be righteous thing, it's a hunger and it's a thirst, but the, here's the irony. Um, the problem is we hunger for what we're unable to fulfill. And that leads to despair, in a sense. Leads to despair, in a sense. So how do you become righteous? Most people, the answer to that question, most people, their answer to that question is, well, um, you just do what's right. You do what God requires. That means obey the law, right? Well, here's the problem with that. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight through the observance of the law. Instead, it's through the law we become conscious of sin. So what did Paul just say? The law, the Ten Commandments, all the thou's shalts and the thou shalt nots, cannot make you righteous. The only thing they will do is bring you to the place of despair by showing you that you can't be made righteous by observing them. Paul says, you know, I didn't even know what it meant to covet until I read the commandment not to covet. And then after I read the commandment not to covet, all I wanted to do was covet. That's what the law does. It stirs up sin. So you want to know how not to become humble? Trying hard to be humble. You want to know how not to become meek? By trying to be meek. It, it just, that's counterintuitive. It's like, well, what do you want from us? Tell us to be righteous like your heavenly Father. And then we can't even become righteous like your heavenly Father. That's the point. That's the point. The law is to drive us to the despair of our own ability, which brings us back to the poor in spirit. We recognize we're spiritually bankrupt. We have no ability to, to become righteous even though we hunger for it. That's the problem. Now here's the solution. There is a solution. Jesus is our righteousness. All of these beatitudes are fulfilled in the person and the work of our Savior. He is our righteousness. The positional righteousness of the gospel. Positional righteousness means that's what we receive in Christ. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. First for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed by faith. Through faith. For just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying you can't be made righteous by your observance of the law. You want to know how to become righteous? you receive the imputed or gifted righteousness of your Savior. Here's the deal. 
the only thing I have ever merited is judgment. And Jesus took that to the cross. The only thing that Jesus ever merited was glory, and he gave that to me. <laughs> That's the gospel. It is a, it's a free gift. It's a free gift. That's who I am in Christ. Do you know who, who the Father sees when he looks at Brooke Simpson in 2019 in all my brokenness and all my pride and all my sin? Do you know who he saw? He didn't, he didn't see, he didn't look at Brooks and say, now there's someone who's full of arrogance and full of pride. He says, there's someone who has the righteousness of my son. That's the gospel. But it's positional. Luther called it an alien righteousness. It doesn't come from me. It invaded me. Now, fair question, and some of you ladies should be asking it if you're not, with folded arms. Well, that's fine for you and Jesus, but does your wife benefit from this positional righteousness, or are you still a jerk? That is a very fair question. I'm not going to answer the last part of that question, but I will answer the, the first part. Positional righteousness always leads to practical righteousness. Peter says in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, He himself bore our sins in, the body of, in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So you receive this imputed righteousness, which is the righteousness of Christ, which you didn't earn, you didn't merit. It's just a gift. He took your sins. He bore your penalty, my penalty on the, on, the, on the tree. He was cursed for us, and we are blessed through his righteousness. It's a gift. I didn't earn it. I didn't do anything. I'm accounted righteous, right? Because I have been counted righteous, I am called to die to self and live for him. There is, a, there's, there is the act of obedience, but this is the Holy Spirit working. And the Holy Spirit begins to work only when a person is broken and contrite because only then will the person humble themselves and draw near to God. And only then will God pour out more grace, which leads to sanctification. So yes, you begin to pray and you begin to ask God to give you the fruit of the Spirit, to transform you, to do whatever. Lord, put me on the anvil and drop the hammer, but beat this pride out of me and help me to become humble. Lord, Work your righteousness in and through me. I know who I am in Christ. I want Christ to live through me. I want to live what Paul said when he said, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I want you, Jesus, to live through me. I don't want to be proud. I want to be humble. I want to be gentle. I want to be meek. I want these things. And it's painful to see that you're not. But there's comfort because the gospel keeps coming back around and, and, and the Holy Spirit keeps reminding me of who I am in Christ. So towards the end of the counseling, I don't know, sometime in October, we're sitting there with my counselor and his wife and Stacy and I, and, and we've done tons of homework, tons of homework, um, Lots of prayer. And 
Jim, the counselor, says to Stacy, Stacy, you're, you're different. At first, you were kind of guarded and you chose your words very carefully, but now you're very free to share what you see in Brooks and so forth. There's no, there's no defense mechanism. You're just very different. He said, how is Brooks doing? Now, at this point, I grab the seat of the chair because I'm prepared for the worst. I'm prepared for the worst. And so I'm just kind of like... And he asks, on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your husband's growth, the fruit of the Spirit, in your marriage? And I'm prepared to hear the worst. And she says, I'd say an 8. And I just started weeping. Because there's no way I could have manufactured any of that a year ago. If I tried, and that's the point, I did try to not be angry. But I hadn't been broken. So what I'm telling you is that positional righteousness, when you submit yourself to God and you believe the gospel and you partake in, in the works of Christ, that positional righteousness becomes practical. Not in perfection. I'm still an idiot. I'm still proud. But I'm progressively becoming less so because of what Christ has done. So, as we, uh, as we go to the Lord in prayer, I want to encourage you that if you identify with any of what I've said and you see yourself and you mourn over your own sin, uh, don't resist that. Don't resist that. Don't try to put yourself up on a pedestal and say, no, I'm better than I am. Just own it. Just own it. Allow yourself to be broken because God is the one trying to do the breaking, but he won't leave you in that broken state. He wants to break us so that he can make us whole in Christ. To make us whole in Christ. So that he can bring about humility and the fruit of the Spirit. So the next slide here. Um, in a moment, after Jason gives us some instructions about next week, I'm going to break up into prayer together. And, and really, the Lord starts working when we start asking. Again, I've been teaching for 20 years. I can tell you about positional and practical righteousness and have practically nothing to show for it. Um, so that's possible. Uh, but until you start asking for the things that we know intellectually, for God to work in your heart, um, Nothing really happens. So corporately, we're going to break up and we're going to pray for these things so that God might work in our hearts. But before we do that, let's, let me pray. Lord, thank you, for, thank you for the fact that you sometimes give us severe mercy. Thank you that you love us and you discipline us as sons and daughters. Thank you, Lord, that you love us the way we are, but you love us way too much to leave us there. Thank you, Lord, that the gospel is for all people, even the worst of sinners especially the worst of sinners. And Lord, I thank you that you have given me new life in Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would speak life into everybody here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.